Hi, this is Raphael, and uh, here we are with Ask Me Anything for today, uh, Saturday, the, what the heck date is it? The 10th of October already. Welcome. Nice to be with you. M says, hey team, my dad has a hiatus hernia and asked me for some exercises that are safe for him to do to strengthen his abdominal wall. I suggested planks, toe taps, leg extensions and heel taps. Do you have any advice on what would be safe for him to do for me to add to his program? Thanks in advance. Uh, well, M, I uh, first let's start out by talking about what a hiatus hernia is. So you uh, have... In your rib cage, it's called your thoracic cavity, and inside your thoracic cavity is your heart and your lungs, and separating your thoracic cavity from your abdominal cavity is a muscle called the diaphragm muscle and it's a dome-shaped muscle as in it is uh, kind of semi-spherical and it's you know bulges upwards towards the top or well, bulges isn't right the, the right word it's curved um, with the top being higher or it's convex superiorly would be the anatomical way of saying it and underneath your diaphragm, you have your various uh, abdominal organs. And one of those that's right up the top on the left-hand side is your stomach, which is a little bag of muscle. It's a little muscular bag with three layers of muscle in its walls that squeeze and compress your food every which way to digest it. Now, going from your mouth to your stomach is a tube called your esophagus. And your esophagus goes down uh, through your diaphragm through a space in a little hole in the diaphragm called the esophagus. I'm not sure if I spelled that right, but uh, I think there's an E in there somewhere. And it's called the esophageal hiatus. And hiatus just means space. So it's just the little gap in the diaphragm where your esophagus, your food tube, goes down from your mouth all the way down to your stomach. And the stomach itself is pretty much directly um, up against the diaphragm beneath the esophageal hiatus and a hiatus hernia is where and a hernia sorry is where in general is where an organ uh, pro protrudes into or out of a body cavity um, and a hiatus hernia is where some part of your stomach protrudes up through the esophageal hiatus into the uh thoracic cavity into your chest where your heart and lungs are and typically this uh, in uh, typically this can be either asymptomatic so no symptoms or there can be symptoms like heartburn and reflux um, you know um, basically stomach pains um, and uh, but in very rare cases, it can, uh, if too much of the stomach bulges up, it can uh, cause uh, problems for the heart because it basically presses up against the heart. 
So um, it should be managed by a doctor. And in terms of exercise, I did look on Google Scholar and I found absolutely nothing, not a single study in relation to hiatus, hernia and exercise in all of the history of time. Um, so I'm really uh, working from first principles here. But uh, what I would say to you based on first principles is that uh, what would cause, you know, what would plausibly um, cause the, the stomach to herniate up into the thoracic cavity um, would be an increase in pressure inside the abdomen, uh, inside the abdomen, which is called intra-abdominal pressure. So intra just means within and abdominal pressure. So basically, if there's more pressure inside the abdomen than in the thoracic cavity, well, that will push things up and it will also push things down and it will also push things out. Um, so intra-abdominal pressure, uh, I would imagine, would be something that may aggravate it. Um, and so, and also just mechanical movements where the stomach is pressed upwards. So I'm thinking uh, anything that increased intra-abdominal pressure might be good to give it a miss if it increases symptoms. If it doesn't increase symptoms, I probably wouldn't worry about it. But I would say, so basically what's going to increase intra-abdominal pressure is if you breath hold um, or brace. So basically, um, if you go, which is called the Valsalva maneuver, or if you if your dad does that, that that's that is a maneuver that we do to increase our intra-abdominal pressure, and that helps us to brace our spine and keep things stiff. Um, and so, uh, I'm guessing that might uh, potentially worsen his symptoms. If it doesn't worsen his symptoms, I wouldn't worry about it. Like I said. But um, so I would, I would rather than avoiding certain exercises, I would more say like breathe through it. So whatever exercise you do, just breathe, don't breath hold. Um, I would probably avoid, uh, again, if it aggravated symptoms only, um, uh, prolonged isometric contractions like hold, you know, like planks and things like that. Um, if it doesn't aggravate symptoms, I would say it's probably perfectly fine. And if prolonged isometric holes like planks and things do aggravate symptoms, well, you could just basically do the same movement but move in and out of it. So you could basically go, say, say from a down dog position to a plank to a down dog to a plank or go, you know, like just move in and out of it somehow basically um, so that you're not holding for a sustained period, which tends to increase intra-abdominal pressure. So that would be the first thing. The second thing, and I'm kind of just basically guessing here, but um, I would tend to suspect that flexion would tend to, you know, reduce the intra-abdominal space. You know, there's less space inside the abdomen when you flex, um, and that would tend to, you know, push the organs uh, every which way. And I would imagine, um, as I just, you know, imagine the anatomy and where stuff is, I imagine that would possibly push the stomach upwards into the diaphragm. Uh, so yeah, that may be something that aggravates symptoms. Uh, and taking a deep in-breath, um, again, in a flexed position, um, might also aggravate symptoms because that would push the diaphragm down you know, as you inhale, the diaphragm descends. It 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 
uh, is a curved muscle when it's at rest and when it contracts, it shortens, which causes it to flatten or in other words, descend. Uh, and so as it descends, it could conceivably, you know, kind of squeeze past the top of the stomach. Um, so I would say uh, probably avoid breath holding, avoid prolonged isometrics, you know, just move in and out of it. And uh, I don't know about avoid flexion, but I would say uh, yeah, particularly avoid combined flexion plus a deep inhale at the same time. Um, but I would say like own, be guided by symptoms. If, if none of that aggravates his symptoms, don't worry about it. Um, but if any of those things aggravate his symptoms, uh, you know, find alternatives. So I hope that helps. I'm sorry. It's really just basically guesswork based on my understanding of the anatomy of what's going on. And there doesn't seem to be any research on exercise and hiatus hernia. Um, what I did find is it's mostly uh, controlled with medication and sometimes surgery. So yeah, but I'm sure you're on top of all that. OPR, uh, contacted me uh, via a DM on Instagram. She said, hey, Raph, I'm loving your AMAs. I can tell you, uh, I can tell that so much critical thinking and reading goes behind it. Well, thank you. I've always heard my flexibility teachers and physios talk or warn me about muscle compensation and that I have to engage or use the correct muscles so over time I don't end up with a muscle compensation-related injury. Since starting at Breathe, I've heard Heath and the teachers talk about the body just knowing what muscles to use. So I'm kind of conflicted on what to believe, if muscle compo is a thing, to what extent, or if it's a load of bull. Can you shed some clarity on this topic for me? Thank you. Uh, well, I will do my best. Uh, so muscle compensation is a thing. Um, but it's not a thing in the way that most people think it's a thing. Uh, so compensation you know, t just means when a body structure is unable to uh, fully do its normal job, some other body structure can sort of take over part or all of that function. Um and a great example is if you injure your anterior cruciate ligament in the knee. So if you picture the knee from the side view, there's a femur bone, and I'm going to draw a super uh, simplified version here. There's a femur bone, which looks like a big kind of marrow bone. Then you've got a tibia, which is the shin bone. And then in between the tibia and the femur, running from the back of the femur to the front of the tibia is a ligament inside the knee called the anterior cruciate ligament or the ACL. And that ligament, the ACL, it's one of its primary roles is to prevent the tibia sliding forwards on the femur or the, num the shearing forwards would be another way of calling that. And I actually call that um, well, let's just call it anterior shear of the of the tibia, and the ACL uh, prevents that. Now, there are multiple other structures that also run in exactly the same direction as the ACL. So, for instance, you have your on the outside of the knee, you have your iliotibial band which is a tight band of fascia that runs down the outside of the thigh. 
and inserts into the tibia and runs almost exactly parallel to the anterior cruciate ligament. And behind the thigh, you have the hamstring muscles, one of which is called semitendinosus. Semitendinosus, that's one of the inner hamstrings. And its tendon runs on the inside of the leg, almost exactly parallel with the anterior cruciate ligament and the tendon of the IT band, the insertion of the, the or, sorry, yeah, the insertion of the IT band. So if your anterior cruciate ligament is injured, if there's some kind of problem with your anterior cruciate ligament, well, if it's been shown experimentally that if people just, you know, contract their hamstrings more and also contract their uh, tensor fasciolata more and gluteus maximus more, well, that can um, essentially fully compensate for the lack of structural integrity in the anterior cruciate ligament. So the tibia remains just as uh, perfectly positioned as if the ACL was fully intact. So that's an example of uh, muscle compensation. The muscle compensation is a real thing and it is, has been documented to happen. Uh, and it's a good thing. It's it's redundant. We have redundant backup systems in our body. So if one, uh, if there's a problem with some part, other parts can take over some or all of the function of that part. That's a good thing. Um, and that's why we see people who have a limb amputation or a severe scoliosis or um, you know, other you know, significant uh, physical uh, asymmetries that they're often able to function you know, at a very high level. And we see like Usain Bolt with a scoliosis and a leg length difference, the fastest human who's ever lived, who's ever walked the planet. We see someone like Lamar Gant, um, who was the first human to ever deadlift five times his own body weight. Um, yes, I said that correctly, five times his own body weight. Uh, and the man had quite a severe scoliosis, so much so that if... Uh, if he hadn't have had one, he probably would have been two or three inches taller. Um, and there is a very, very long list of people with uh, significant asymmetries who have been able to perform at an extremely high level in many different sports um, because of compensation. So because, you know, certain muscles or ligaments or um, bony structures were weaker on one side or you know, misshapen or asymmetrical or whatever – the other side or some other group of muscles, ligaments or tendons or whatever, uh, compensated and they were able to perform. So compensation is a real thing. It's generally viewed as a good thing. Um, when you've got a problem, you compensate for it and you can still keep going. Now, the second uh, and probably less uh, less useful way of thinking about compensation is thinking of compensation the way that uh, I guess most Pilates instructors would think about it. Um, that it's a bad thing, you know, um, that we're not supposed to compensate. Uh, but it's also very, uh, I think, very muzzily defined. So the idea of, you know, behind you know, the second definition of compensation is that it's some kind of dysfunction, which I'm putting inverted commas around, and that, there, you know, which, which presupposes that there is some ideal, quote, functional uh, state 
that is optimal, uh, which, you know, in which all of our muscles are equally strong and equally flexible and fire at the correct times and our alignment is, uh, you know, balanced and even and centered in the joint and everything is working in, you know, synchrony and harmony. Um, and that to the degree that we deviate from this sort of ideal mechanical uh configuration that then we cause addition, you know, so if one muscle's pulling harder than the other muscle, or if the joint is a little bit out of alignment or, you know, whatever it might be, you know, one muscle's tighter than the other muscle, etc. Um, that this, we then are pulled or pushed or whatever out of our quote ideal sort of mechanical configuration and then we create you know compensations because one muscle has to work harder and the other muscle's not not pulling its weight excuse me and then we cause somehow that causes an injury or wear and tear um and that has just generally not held up to evidence that idea so there's one particular uh, study that uh, I'm thinking of. So I mean, we could look at we could look at uh, multiple lines of evidence for this. So, for example, uh, there's a very um, there there's a lot of uh, what's called epidemiological uh, research on this. So, for instance, looking at the relationship between sitting posture and neck pain, the relate or shoulder posture and neck pain, or ergonomics and neck pain, all show that there's basically no relationship. Um, the literature looking at the relationship between foot posture, you know, pronation or supination and running injuries. And what we find is there's basically no relationship. Uh, the literature looking at um, muscle firing patterns in the abdominals and spinal muscles, so the transversus abdominis, the multifidus muscle, the deep muscles of the of the spine and abdomen, the relationship between the timing of those muscles and whether someone has low back pain or not. And we find again and again, there's basically no relationship between those things. So there's lots of sort of observational evidence, but <clears throat> actually like the, the even higher quality evidence comes from a randomized co controlled trials. And there've been a few. Uh, and there's this one in particular, which was done in 2017 by Azevedo et al. Um, and it was called Movement System Impairment-Based Classification Treatment versus General Exercises for Chronic Low Back Pain, Randomized Controlled Trial. And so what they did basically was they had uh, 148 participants with chronic low back pain, and they were randomly assigned either into a general exercise group or a movement system impairment-based specific exercise group. Um, and both groups had uh, 12 physical therapy sessions, so that's in Australia what we call physiotherapy sessions, over an eight-week period. So they had two sessions a week for the first four weeks and one session a week for the second four weeks. Each uh, treatment session was between 45 and 60 minutes and was supervised by trained physiotherapists. And, he, and so basically uh, the, the intervention group, the movement system impairment uh, exercise group, they got evaluated on a whole bunch of parameters. So here are some of the tests that they did. They did uh, standing uh, posture assessment, looked for asymmetry and regularity of the lumbar spine. They looked for posture type and shape of the lumbar curve. They did posterior pelvic tilts against the wall. They did forward bending to measure lumbar flexion, lumbar extension, and relative flexibility of different parts of the spine. 
they corrected the forward bending and, and uh, noted whether that had any effect on symptoms. They did the return from forward bending. They looked at the timing and the relative contribution of their hip extension, their lumbar extension, their pelvic and shoulder movement. Uh, then they corrected that and saw uh, and and measured whether that had any effect on symptoms. They did sitting, looked at uh, different sitting postures. They looked at knee extension in sitting and looking at whether that caused the lumbar spine or the pelvis to rotate. They did supine lying on their back with knees uh, flexed, knees extended. They did uh, lying on the back with knees bent uh, with uh, hip ab- abduction and looked at their hip flexibility. They corrected their hip abduction. They lay them prone, looked at their relative flexibility between uh, their knees and their hips. They corrected that. They looked for asymmetrical pelvic rotation. They looked for hip rotation, relative flexibility between hips and asymmetrical pelvic rotation. They looked at hip extension. They looked at uh, quadruped, so on all fours. They looked at the uh, lumbar alignment, any asymmetry or the any alignment of the hip joints. They, they corrected that and then measured for symptom change. They lifted the arms and looked at the spine when the arms were lifted, when each arm was lifted, whether there was asymmetrical lumbar spine movement. They uh, rocked back and forwards on all fours and looked at their relative flexibility between the hips, the shoulders and the spine and the pelvic rotation or tilt. Then they corrected that and measured symptoms. So it was a very comprehensive assessment. Um, and for each of the items I'm reading here for now from the study, the participants assumed a position or performs a movement and reports the status of their low back pain symptoms. So symptoms either increased, decreased or stayed the same. Positions or movements associated with increased symptoms are followed by corrected alignment or movement involving minimizing the lumbar movement, that's the low back movement, that occurs in the early part of the range of motion, or that is excessive, in the opinion of the physiotherapist, while increasing movement in other joints, i.e. the hip joint. Um, An improvement in the symptoms indicates that the movement or alignment impairment in a specific direction, i.e. extension, is associated with the patient's symptoms and helps to decide on the participant's movement system impairment classification. For each of the items, the examiner judges the alignment of the lumbar region in different positions and or looks for incorrect timing and or magnitude of lumbar movement during trunk and limb movements. Alignment of lumbar region in a specific direction in different positions and incorrect timing and or magnitude of lumbar movement um, help to decide on the participant's movement system impairment classification. Um, And relative flexibility refers to motion of adjoining segments occurring more readily in one of the joints. So for example, uh, if the lumbar spine moves more easily than the hip joint, Um, even if the motion should be Uh, occurring the other joint. In general, if patient exhibits a relative flexibility impairment, if the lumbar region moves in the first 50% of the ranges of the overall movement or excessively during the overall movement. Uh, So that is, you know, it's a very uh, in-depth classification and physical assessment. And then the treatment group got basically exercises targeting those uh, impairments that were identified. So they got exercises to correct their flexibility imbalances, their movement control imbalances, their asymmetries, etc. And uh, the other group, the uh, general exercise group, got 
uh, symptom guided stretching and strengthening exercise. So they got uh, everyone in the group got the same program. It was basically just spinal exercises, uh, spinal flexion, spinal extension, spinal side bending, and spinal rotation. They got hip flexion, hip extension, hip rotation, hip abductors, and hip adductors. So they just did static stretches for each of those for 30 seconds. And if that made their symptoms worse, they discontinued that particular stretch um, and then tried it again later. So um, basically, they that's what they did. Um, so one group basically just got the same, uh, and then they just got some uh, basic strengthening exercises for abdominals and, and the back muscles. Uh, so they basically did three sets of 10 reps um, of, you know, abdominal curls and stuff like that. Uh, and so uh, at the end of the trial, what they found was, uh, and I'm just going to read from the conclusions here in the abstract, um, Results. There were no significant between group differences for the primary outcomes of pain intensity at two months and disability at two months. There were also no statistically significant differences between treatment groups for any of the secondary outcome measures. Conclusions. People with chronic low back pain had similar improvements in pain, disability and global impression of recovery with treatment consisting of symptom guided stretching and strengthening exercises and treatment based on the movement system impairment model. So that is uh, an, ex an example, and there are many others, of a study that has looked at, uh, you know, the idea of imbalances or compensations and uh, done an, an intervention, Freudian slip, I said invention, uh, an intervention to, uh, you know, quote, correct those imbalances and compensations and found that it works no better or worse than just doing some general strengthening and stretching exercises. And that finding is extremely robust in the literature. Uh, it's been very well replicated. Um, and I'd say it's pretty uncontroversial uh, amongst uh, researchers and um, is uh, enshrined in just about every clinical guideline around the world um, that general exercise is just as effective. So in other words, just a general strengthening and stretching program is just as effective as a specific exercise that targets, you know, improving some parameter of movement, whether it's muscle activation or posture or alignment or whatever it might be. Um, so yeah, so basically uh, are compensations a thing? Yes, they are but not the way that people generally think about them in the Pilates uh, and possibly the physio world. And uh, generally, compensations are actually a good thing if you have a body part that's not working properly because it's damaged or injured or grew up weak or is asymmetrical or whatever. Well, congratulations, not a problem. We've got multiple backups, so your other body parts can take over. Yay for you. That's awesome. Um, and secondly, we have this kind of not quite clear definition and not factual definition of compensations in mostly in the Pilates world, I think, where we see it's a, de it's a deviation from some kind of idealized optimal biomechanical, you know, uh, scenario. Uh, and that, uh, you know, any deviation from that is a bad thing because we're using too many of one muscle and not enough of another muscle. Um, and what we find is that is just not the case. So, um, yeah, hope that, hope that answers your question and, and uh, puts that to bed for you. Um, Sarah says, hey, Raf, are the Breathe Education courses internationally recognised? Hmm. Uh, good question, Sarah. Um, well, uh, how do I answer this? Here's the thing. Uh, Pilates 
itself <laughs> is not internationally recognised. Um, so uh, there are there you know there are companies out there um, you know claiming that oh our training is internationally recognised, um, and the reality is well that's kind of all Pilates is allowed in every country just about. So there's no such thing as internationally recognized because there's nothing that's unrecognized. So for instance, if you are living in the US and you want to go teach Pilates uh, and you're qualified through Breathe Education in Australia, uh, assuming you've got a green card and all of that stuff, you can just go get some insurance with the uh, whatever the biggest insurers are over there, the normal, you know, top five insurers that insure Pilates instructors, you can just rock up with your breathe certificate and get your insurance and start teaching and it's 100% legal. Uh, if you're in South Africa, you can do the same. Um, through Europe, you can do the same. The UK, you can do the same. Um Southeast Asia, the Middle East, um, you can do the same. And that's not because Breathe Education has some kind of magical, uh, you know, mystical international uh, recognition. It's just because Pilates is like such a small, tiny thing in uh, the eyes of most governments that it's not even worth like recognizing or not recognizing. <laughs> it's just kind of beneath their notice. So they don't really care. And uh, basically anyone with any Pilates qualification from anywhere can teach Pilates anywhere. So um, yeah, <laughs> is our course internationally recognized? Well, recognized by whom? No one cares. There's no one to recognize it. The, it's beneath their attention. But uh, if by internationally recognized, you mean with a breathe certification, can you go work somewhere else in the world? Sure. You go work anywhere you want. You just got to get yourself the appropriate visa and work permits and, and insurance, which you can obtain easily in terms of insurance with your breathe certification um, uh, and go for gold. Uh, yeah, it's not like sort of something like physiotherapy where, you know, if you're qualified in India, you might have studied four years and you know, be highly qualified and then you come to Australia and they make you go through the whole four-year degree again um, because, you know, Australia doesn't recognise that particular certification. So it's not like that uh, in Pilates because it's just kind of considered not important enough to worry about. Um, all right, so I hope that helps, Sarah. Mary says, hi, Raf, I'm loving AMA. I found it so interesting and look forward to it every week. Well, I'm really happy to hear that, Mary. Thank you. Um, thank you for being so generous with your time. My pleasure. My question is about lateral pelvic tilt. What causes it and how do I fix it? Uh, well, uh, I would say uh, I have a few questions for you which are kind of rhetorical and kind of also for you to answer for your own self. Well, the first question is like, well, why do you want to fix it? You know, uh, mm, all right, no. My even first, my, my, let me back up and ask a previous question. How do you know you've got lateral pelvic tilt? Uh, because uh, there are, you know, if you've, if you've been told um, by somebody who, you know, stuck their fingers on your 
uh, bony landmarks in your pelvis, like your iliac crests or your ASIS, your anterior superior iliac spine, the bony bump in the front of your pelvis, or your PSIS, your posterior superior iliac spine, the bony bump at the back of your pelvis next to your sacrum. Um, if they palpated, which means to just touch those body parts and then kind of squinted at eye level and said, oh yeah, I think your left's a bit higher than your right or vice versa, um, then they were probably wrong. Um, and there are several reasons that I say that. The first one is that pelvises are not symmetrical. So ju in just the same way as when you go and uh, get yourself measured for a pair of shoes, it's very, very likely that one foot is larger than the other. Uh, and almost everybody has, is slightly asymmetrical in every body part. Um, so, uh, and so it is with our pelvises. So, um, there's, there's one particular study where they got a bunch of uh, pelvises from cadavers, you know, people who donated their bodies to science and they stuck these pelvises in a special jig, which is just basically a set of clamps that clamp it in a very specific position. And then they measured the relative height of all of these bony landmarks, the ASIS, the PSIS, the, uh, height of the iliac crest, the pubic um, symphysis, etc. And what they found was there's about a plus or minus 11 millimeters in, in most of those in terms of height from side to side. So if your ASIS is 11 millimeters higher on one side, that doesn't necessarily mean your pelvis is tilted. It might just mean that your actual ASIS is 11 millimeters higher and your pelvis could be perfectly level. So that's one thing. So there's a bunch of studies showing that pelvises are, and all other body parts, are in fact not perfectly symmetrical. So uh, if we made you line up your ASISs so they were perfectly in line, that might cause you <laughs> to be in a laterally tilted pelvic position. Uh, the second thing is that it is highly unreliable to palpate these bony landmarks and determine where they are. So uh, there's a bunch of research looking at trained physiotherapists, so very experienced physiotherapists, you know, 20 years average experience, um, all palpating, you know, certain bony landmarks in the spine or pelvis, and basically uh, wildly disagreeing about the location. So they'll all be like, oh, I've found the right L4 transverse process or whatever. I found it. It's here. No, it's here. No, it's here. So that basically uh, can't agree on that with, you know, I mean, obviously, None of them think it's on the shoulder. They all, you know, very fairly close to each other, but like they might be out by a centimetre or so. So if you think like, okay, physio trained physiotherapists who do this for a living and are very confident that they're doing it correctly can be plus or minus a centimetre with their palpation. And then we stack on top of that the fact that the actual bony landmarks vary in their position by plus or minus a centimetre. Well, you can be out two centimetres in either direction. So there's a four centimetre variation there in the normal pain-free population. So, you know, just because someone looked at you or palpated your bony landmarks and said, oh, your XYZ is lower or higher than your other side, it's very unlikely that they're correct. Um so that's number one. How do you know you've got a pelvic tilt? You probably don't, uh, unless you've had an X-ray <laughs> uh, or a CT, uh, which has been measured, not just eyeballed by somebody. Uh, and second question, okay, just say you do know you've got a pelvic tilt. Well, how do you know it's causing a problem? Is it causing a problem? I mean, do you have back pain? 
Do you have hip pain? Do you have sacroiliac joint pain? And if you have back pain or hip pain or sacroiliac joint pain and you have a pelvic tilt, well, how do you know that the pelvic tilt is causing the back pain or the hip pain or sacroiliac joint pain? Because the assumption that it's causing that pain is not necessarily the most likely explanation. Um, and that has been shown uh, again by, you know, for example, the movement system impairment research that I uh, mentioned just to, in the last question or the previous question before that, that when we correct these asymmetries, the pain doesn't get better any more than when we just do general exercise. So there's something about exercising that helps pain, but it this whether we change specific things or not doesn't seem to be important in terms of alleviating pain, dysfunction, a disability, sorry, not dysfunction, disability uh, for people with low back pain and sacroiliac pain and whatever. Uh, so how do you know you've got a pelvic lateral pelvic tilt, you probably don't know that, even if you've been told it with a great degree of confidence by somebody who should know, they probably don't know. Second, if you've got it, how do you know it's causing a problem? Do you have pain? If you don't have pain, it's not causing a problem. If you do have pain and you've got a pelvic tilt, how do you know the pelvic tilt's causing the, the pain? And the answer is you can't know that. <laughs> um, and the reason you can't know that is because uh, pain is multifactorial and complex and is basically generally not possible to distill it down to a simple, you know, A caused B um, when it comes to pain. It's highly highly complex and not well understood. Um, but what we do understand about pain is enough to say that it's generally multifactorial. Um, if you have pain, if you have low back pain, if you have hip pain, if you have sacroiliac joint pain, the things that I would recommend, uh, don't worry about your pelvic tilt. Um, do some general exercise, strengthen whole body, stretch whole body. Doesn't matter what exercise you do, just do something you enjoy. Uh, get get enough sleep, get eight to nine hours a day sleep. The best way to get more sleep is to spend more time in bed. Spend more time in bed, you're likely to spend some of that time asleep. Um, manage your stress, you know. Remove yourself from stressful situations or do things to manage your stress. You know, meditate, go for a walk in nature, have a glass of wine with your loved one, do some exercise. Uh, empower, you, empower yourself with some, um, with some fearlessness about movement. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do that. <laughs> I'm trying my best to help you with that right now um, by... Uh, trying to help you understand that it's extremely unlikely that there's any problem with your pelvis. Your pelvis is probably awesome and perfectly fine and works perfectly. Um, and that the problem, if you if you have pain, and if you don't have pain, hey, pff, happy days, just walk away, don't worry about it. Um, but if you do have pain, it's probably more to do with a sensitized nervous system and a, sorry, an oversensitive pain system rather than it is to do with a dysfunction in your pelvic geometry. You know, asterisk, if you have pain and you recently had a fall, well, yeah, <laughs> that might be related. You might have some bruising or whatever. But, you know, from the sounds of what you've written, that doesn't sound like it's the case. So I hope that helps. Um, get moving. Check if you're getting enough sleep. Manage your stress and uh, try not to worry about it. I hope that helps, Mary. 
Genevieve says, hey again, Raf. hope you had a good week. I did. I had an awesome week. Thank you very much. Just a small niggly question on the rectus femoris, which is the straight muscle of the femur. It's the central muscle in the front of your thigh, one of the quadriceps. From the anatomy of the knee lecture, what I understand is that in standing, hip flexion, then knee extension. So in other words, when you stand up, you lift your leg up and then you straighten your knee. So your leg is straight out in front of you. Uh, this movement, it shortens the rectus femoris across the hip and the knee joint because the rectus femoris is a hip flexor, so it flexes the hip, and it's a knee extensor. It's one of the quadriceps, so it extends the knee and flexes the hip. That's correct. Thus, the burning and difficulty of this position and the muscle pulling from either end. Is that right? 100% spot on. You've got it, Genevieve. So when we see yogis or dancers standing and lifting one leg straight up in the air with the knee straight... Is this something that can be progressively worked on, even though it is always going to be shortened across the two joints, or are some people just genetically able? Thank you, Genevieve. Uh, Genevieve, so I think it's a little bit of both. Um, so the ability to lift the leg up uh, involves working the rectus femoris at very short muscle lengths. Um, and there are also... Uh, other hip flexors that are working there, so the psoas, the, iliacta, the iliacus, uh, the tensor fascia lata, the sartorius, uh, the pectineus, uh, adductor brevis, adductor longus, they're all going to be working in that hip flexion movement. Uh, so even though the rectus femoris, you know, is working really hard at a very short length and thus probably not producing a lot of force, the other muscles can compensate uh, and make up for the difference. So, you know, having a stronger psoas and a stronger, all the rest of those ones can, you know, make up for the lack of strength that the rectus femoris can produce in that position. So, and how do you get a stronger psoas and a stronger adductor brevis and whatever? Well, you practice movements that strengthen the psoas and the adductor brevis. What's a movement? Well, a movement like standing, lifting a leg straight up forwards where the rectus femoris can't contribute because it's maximally shortened and can't produce a lot of force in that position will force the psoas and the pectineus and the iliacus and the blah 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 all the other ones to work harder which will in turn strengthen them so in other words just practice doing the thing and you'll get better at doing the thing um, so that's part of it so yes there is a it's called a length tension relationship um, and as muscles are very short or very long they produce less tension, whereas in their mid-range, muscles are much stronger. The other thing is that as you lift the leg up, you're lifting it against not just the weight of the leg, but you're also lifting against the resistance of the muscles and tissues on the back of the leg. So your hamstrings, the fascia, tendons, etc., at the back of the leg have to elongate, and if they're stiff, you know, and by stiff, I, I mean a very specific thing, I mean resistant to length change you know so when you pull on it it is hard to lengthen it you know you have to apply a lot of force to lengthen it um, well if things require more force to lengthen well you have to apply more force to lift your leg up right so actually you want less stiff muscles fascia tendons etc on the back of the leg and stronger muscles on the front of the leg, but particularly stronger at short muscle lengths. Um, so the, yeah, the final two things I'm going to leave you with are, how do you make muscles less stiff? 
I'm not aware that there is a way. Um, so sorry, I'm just going to leave that there. How do you make muscles stronger at short muscle lengths? Well, strength is joint angle specific. So when you practice strengthening at short muscle lengths, you get preferentially stronger at short muscle lengths. So doing like general hip flexor strengthening uh, won't be anywhere near as good for this particular application as strengthening in the exact position that you want to get better in. So uh, it comes back to, to get better at doing the thing, do the thing. Uh, and then probably choose the right parents and have, uh, you know, low stiffness in your passive tissues on the back of the hip. <laughs> hope that helped, Genevieve. Karen says, Hi, Raf. If someone has had a herniated disc or microdiscectomy, which is just where they shave off a bit of herniated disc, herniation, as we said in the hiatus hernia, is where a part of an organ protrudes in or out of some body cavity. And a herniated disc is a disc in your back in between two spinal bones where the disc bulges out, you know, herniates out into the spinal canal or some other part of the body. Uh, and a microdiscectomy is where they just basically slice off the bulging bit. Um, so if someone has had a herniated disc or microdiscectomy a few years ago and no longer has pain, are there any restrictions on what they can do? How long after they feel okay can they do flexion exercises? Thanks, Karen. Well, Karen, uh, the statute of limitations on discs is about uh, 12 to 18 months. So, uh, And that is because the uh, discs are made of something called connective tissue. And the healing time for connective tissue is about 12 to 18 months. So, you know, if you cut your finger, the skin will heal in a couple of weeks. If you tear a calf muscle whilst running, that'll heal in like three to six weeks, you know. So if you break a bone, that'll heal in about six weeks, depending on which bone it is, but, you know, six to eight weeks-ish. Um, and so there, there are, you know, known kind of ranges of how long it takes various tissue types to heal. And connective tissue, which is the tissue that forms your spinal intervertebral discs, as well as your ligaments, as well as your tendons. Uh, another name for it is fascia. Um, as your Achilles tendon, for example, your rotator cuff tendons in your shoulders, your anterior cruciate ligament in your knee are all connective tissue. And all of those things uh, take roughly 12 to 18 months to heal. So if you uh, you know, rupture your Achilles tendon in your ankle, you would expect to, you know, take 12 months to get back to basically, you know, almost full strength. Um, you know, same if you uh, have an anterior cruciate ligament surgically repaired in your knee after you rupture it, it's about a 12-month rehabilitation process. So that's what I would expect in a herniated or microdiscectomy uh, disc. Um, so I would say for the first 12 months, you should gradually build load. Um, and with with all of these injuries that I've referred to, so if it's an ACL rehab in your knee or if it's a Achilles tendon tear or you know any other ligament or tendon injury, uh, initially, you know, immediately after the injury slash immediately after surgery, what you want to do is, uh, you know, for a short period of time, protect that tissue from load because it's just got a few sutures holding it together. But very quickly, like within a week, you want to start to load it very gently and gradually, progressively load it more over time. So it's not a case of 
stay off it for a year until it's healed, then load it, because actually the healing uh, is facilitated by loading. Um, the healing process, so all of these tissues, connective tissue, are made of primarily collagen, which is a protein um, that is secreted by connective tissue cells um, that live inside the you know the, the structure. And so the collagen is a fiber. You know, think like carpet fibers, right? And it's just a it's just protein, like hair. Hair is a protein. Um, uh, it's not collagen, but it's you know it's similar. But it's unlike hair. Well, it's it's like hair in many ways, but it's just way smaller. Like you know, yeah, uh, an order of several orders of magnitude smaller, you know, narrower than hair, um, but, you know, otherwise similar. And so these collagen proteins are secreted, you know, when you when you have an injury to your tendon or your disc or whatever, the the, the cells in there, the, the connective tissue cells start, you know, spewing out collagen to remake that tissue. Uh, and they spew out collagen, but it just all goes all kind of, which it's just a big pile of collagen fibers all mixed up together. Um, and then as you apply load to that tissue gradually over time, the collagen fibers uh, align themselves in line with the forces that are applied to the tissue. So if you gently load your, your injured Achilles tendon, it stretches the tendon in the, you know, the way that the tendon is normally used. It stretches it out and the collagen fibers start to align themselves along the lines of force that are transmitted through that tendon. And now when the collagen fibers are aligned along the lines of force, they uh, provide greater tensile strength. You know, they resist being pulled apart more when they're aligned along those lines of force. So Applying load during the healing process is a crucial part of the healing process. If you don't apply load, the collagen stays disorganized, you know, it doesn't line up. And after kind of that 12 to 18 month healing window, it's called the remodeling phase um, in high class language, uh, that's when you have the opportunity to realign that collagen. After after you've you know passed that, it's much harder to remodel that collagen in response to load. It can still be done, but it's just it, it's not as responsive once it's fully healed. So the optimal thing would be, you know, very soon after surgery, you would start gently loading, whether it's an Achilles tendon or a ACL in your knee or a disc in your back. And then gradually over 12 to 18 months, you would progressively load it more and more till by the 12 month point, you were fully, you know, probably even by the six month point, you were fully loading it. So, uh, you know, because even full load is like, you know, think of like doing loaded sit-ups with a kettlebell um, or doing the hundreds on the reform with three full springs, right? I'm talking load. Um, even full load is nowhere near what's going to happen, what that tissue has to deal with in an unstructured situation. So just imagine you're playing sport and you're running and someone tackles you from the side, right? So some kind of unexpected explosive, you know, situation with contact or falling or twisting or whatever it's like that's what the tissues have to be able to deal with so they you know that's what they have to be able to deal with by the end of the healing process so by about halfway through the healing process they should be capable of you know dealing with full normal strength under controlled conditions so for instance if you're rehabilitating an anterior cruciate ligament 
six months into rehabilitation, you're not ready to go back to playing football, but you are ready or you should be ready if you've been doing your rehabilitation properly to do hopping and, you know, one-legged squats with a barbell, you know, like you, sh- you should be doing strong work. So uh, for your client, uh, Karen, who had a microdiscectomy a few years ago and has no pain, I would say just treat them like uh, somebody who hasn't flexed for a while if they haven't flexed and just start easy and build slowly uh, and just treat it like, you know, building up strength in their back, basically, building up strength in their abs, um, you know, increase over a few months until they're working up a really good head of steam and, you know, doing super impressive moves and, uh, if they don't have any pain, I would just never mention it. I wouldn't ask, how's your back? I wouldn't say anything about it. I wouldn't mention pain. Just make it not a, not a thing. Talk to them about other things. Keep their mind off it. Focus on how many more reps do you reckon you can do. Great, you're doing awesome. High five. So that's what I would recommend. I uh, hope that helps, Karen. Uh, Kira or Kyra. Apologies, I'm not sure how to spell it. Uh, how to pronounce it. Kira or Kyra, because I've interacted with you quite a bit, but only <laughs> in written form. So uh, I apologize if I've butchered the pronunciation of your name. Uh, hi, Raf. I have a question for you. I hope you find it slightly interesting. Apologies for the long explanation. When I jog or do too much physical exercise in general, my right knee gets uncomfortable or flares up. Both knees naturally roll inwards or medially, my right worse than the left. Do you know if knee rotational position contributes to this issue? Particularly when I run, I try my best to stop them rolling medially, as this was the advice I was given when I was younger from a physio. But I'm starting to think this could actually be the problem. Should I just let them be? After all, this is how my body was built. I was literally born this way. Your recent talk on posture got me thinking about it. Thanks for your awesome and critical thinking, Kyra or Kira. My apologies for getting that wrong one way or the other. Um, So... uh, you don't say where the pain is in your knee, um, but basically, it, the regardless, the prescription uh, of exercise is going to be pretty much the same. Um, so there is a place for changing your movement uh, strategies sometimes. So if you have pain that hurts when you do it one way and doesn't hurt when you do it the other way, you know, so if like, for instance, when you run, you have pain, and if you turn your knees out, the pain magically disappears. Well, I'd say there's an argument for turning your knees out. Um, but if you've been trying to do that for years and it still hasn't taken uh, and you still have pain, it sounds like it's not really probably doing that much. Um, and it's really, I would really use a biomechanical change like that, you know, turn your knees out as really just a kind of a temporary get out of jail free card whilst you strengthen up the area. So uh, people run with all kinds of weird and wacky um, alignments, gates and positions at all kinds of levels, like including elite runners. Um, So it's very unlikely to be the case that your alignment is, quote, you know, causing the pain, although it could well be that you've become sensitized to a particular position. And so thus changing to a different position that you're not sensitized to might alleviate the symptoms. But that's not to say that the new position that you're not sensitized to is the, quote, correct position and the old one was the, quote, incorrect position. It's just that, like, 
you've become sensitised to that position. You know, like Steve Martin in uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, the classic 80s uh, detective spoof, uh, where he's got a thing where if anyone says the word cleaning lady, he becomes goes into this psychotic fit and starts murdering people. Uh, and so he's sensitised to the words cleaning lady. Uh, and so if you just don't say cleaning lady, well, the issue doesn't... <laughs> doesn't happen and so that's kind of you know what might happen with uh but there's nothing actually wrong with cleaning ladies you know cleaning ladies are fine that's not their fault they didn't do anything um so and probably you know could be the same with your knee that it's you know turning medially is not a problem it's just that maybe you've become sensitized and the sensitization has been associated in your central nervous system with that position and thus choosing a different position might help but it doesn't sound like it's helping to me because you still got the issue right even though you you know um diligently turning your knees out. So uh, the general prescription for knee pain, which in high-class lingo is called patellofemoral pain syndrome, uh, and there's a hint there when we call anything is called a syndrome and simply describes the symptoms. So patellofemoral pain, you know, patella is the kneecap, femur is the thigh. So the patellofemoral is like somewhere in your kneecap and your thigh. Pain syndrome just describes you've got pain in your knee somewhere. <laughs> so any kind of diagnosis that simply describes the symptoms gives you a uh, 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 big heads up that we have no clue what's causing them. Uh, and so, but the exercise is quite effective for, for patellofemoral pain. And the best combination of exercise is hip strengthening. And I'm not just talking about glutes. I'm talking about every muscle in the hip. So hip extensors glutes and hamstrings, hip flexors, your hip flexors, hip abductors, hip adductors, so just everything in the hip, um, plus knee strengthening, so quadriceps, hamstrings, and calves, because the calf muscle also crosses the knee. So in other words, strengthen the whole leg. But for some reason, unknown to science, uh, if you start with hip strengthening, so start by focusing on hip strengthening, uh, and then you know, a few weeks in, three, four weeks in, add in some, add in the rest of the leg, you know, knee and calf and all of that, that will probably give you better results. So I would start with things like glute bridges and side leg lifts and leg raises and knee squeezes and side crab walks and things like that with a band around your knees to strengthen up the hip, the inside, the outside, the front and the back of the hip. Once you've been doing that for a bit, then keep doing it and add in whole leg work, lunges, squats, footwork, sideline footwork, legs in straps, all of this stuff just to strengthen everything in the leg. Uh, and then I would just uh, advocate a graded exposure approach. So basically run as far as you can run uh, with tolerable pain. Uh, if you get a bit of pain when you run, I wouldn't worry about it. If the pain settles within 24 hours after you finish your run, it's fine. If it doesn't settle within 24 hours, then do run less distance next time until you find a distance and a pace that will enable you to run uh, and for your symptoms uh, to settle within 24 hours after you run. Uh, and then do that for a few weeks and then see if you can push the envelope a bit, see if you can run a little bit further and see if the symptoms will settle within 24 hours still and just keep doing that. Just go basically keep gradually pushing it, keep doing your strengthening of your hip and all of the leg muscles. So uh, hope that helps. Um, and thank you all. That's all we've got for today. I uh, hope you found that useful. I hope you found it interesting. Uh, 
this is released as a podcast now, so you can find it on your iTunes, your Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or any other, wherever your favorite place to find podcast is, as an audio-only podcast. Or if you're already listening to this on podcast, and you want to see my gesticulations and a couple of little stick figure drawings, uh, you can head over to YouTube and find us on YouTube and uh, watch the video. So... I hope you find that helpful. If you want to send me a question, just email me, raphael, R-A-P-H-A-E-L, dot B for Bob, at breathe.edu.au. And uh, send me a question. You don't have to be a friend. You don't have to be a client. You don't have to be a student. You don't have to know me from a bar of soap. If you've got a question, send it in. I'll do my best to answer it. Hope you're well. Hope your loved ones are well. See you next week. Thank you.